tell me yours. And you can go back even further than my undergrad, believe it or not, and you go back to the back of the 19th century. And there's a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche, who I'm sure many of you have heard of. And he said, there are no facts, there are only interpretations. But the problem is, if this is true, what do you rely on? What can you depend on? In a world where there's no absolutes, what can you absolutely believe in? What can you be confident in the things you believe in? What can you hold out to others as being true and dependable? We come back to that question, what is truth? What is truth? And Pilate, in the, uh, the trial with Jesus today, asks exactly that question. Because he's going to be approached by a bunch of Jewish leaders, and they're going to give him one set of facts. And then he's going to be approached, and uh, he's going to be talking to Jesus, and Jesus is going to give him another set of facts. And he's got his own views and opinions in the mix. And finally, he does ask, what is truth? What is truth? So the text today, which focuses on this trial, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the Jewish leaders and their case for truth. We're going to look at the governor Pilate and his case for truth. And then finally, we're going to look at the gospel writer John and his case for truth. So I want to read from uh, John 18, starting at verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So last week we talked about Jesus being interrogated by Annas and by Caiaphas, the high priest. And then when they're done interrogating him, they bring him to the place where Pilate was staying. Now he probably didn't live in uh, Jerusalem the whole time, but this is the time of the Passover festival. So he's there basically to keep an eye on things and make sure there's no riots, make sure there's no troubles, and really be on hand to sort out any issues that might crop up. And we're told that the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to the house, but that they wouldn't go in because they were fearful and they were afraid that they were going to be defiled. Now, the Jews had a rule that if you went into the house of a Gentile or a non-Jew, basically that made you ritually unclean. 
So you couldn't participate in any religious ceremonies or religious festivals until you'd had the opportunity to go through some purification steps. Now, for certain things, that could take up to seven days, up to a week. So the Jews are there, and they're like, well, if we go into his house and we get unclean, we're going to be richly unclean, we can't participate, and they can't be a part of the Jewish Passover, which is going on. And the irony there, John is already pointing out, and he's saying, look, this is crazy. There's these guys, and they're desperately adhering to this rule that they've made up, this rule that's man-made, and it's basically there so they can try and be more religious. They can try and be more like God. And yet, whilst they're doing this, they're equally happy to come and bring a guy that they want killed. They're happy to come and bring this guy and say, we want him dead. So Pilate goes out to meet them, and that seems like a pretty big accommodation, right? Here's the guy who's representative of Rome. Rome is the ruling power, and these guys are whining and saying, well, we can't come in your house. So he comes down and he meets with them, and it just gives you some idea of how much pressure he's at to try and keep peace and try and keep things ticking along. So he goes down to them, and he says, what charge do you bring? Now, Pilate is in charge of upholding the Roman law, so what he's basically saying to them is, what are you saying about this man that is a Roman, I can say, well, that's not good. He's, he's looking for an excuse to go on with this trial and to charge Jesus with something. And they respond, well, obviously he's evil or we wouldn't be here. Not the most robust charge, I would say. Fairly big holes in that one. And it seems kind of rude, right? Here's, again, the guy that's running the area and they've come back with this response. But the likelihood is Pilate has some idea of what's going on. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' arrest, and we said that there were soldiers there. They'd come, and they were part of that arresting party. Now, it's very unlikely that five or 600 soldiers would have turned up without Pilate having some idea of what's going on. So the likelihood is, at some point, the Jewish leaders have come to him, and they said, look, there's this guy, troublemaker. We want to bring him in. We want him tried. We think he's going to need to die. And at some point, at least, Pilate has been somewhat complicit enough to say, okay, take my soldiers and go get this guy. So he's not completely clueless, right? He's got some idea of what's going on. And so they're bringing him, and they're kind of expecting Pilate just to rubber stamp it and just say, yep, you've made your decision, let's go. But he doesn't. Maybe he just wants to annoy them, I don't know. Maybe he needs to actually have some semblance of a charge. It's not clear. But he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, look... What's the issue? And they said, well, you know, we think he's a bad man. And he says, well, if that's what you think, then maybe you should deal with him. And then they start to whine, and they're like, yeah, but we can't lawfully kill him. Now, that may or may not have been true. Probably not. Twice already, they've tried to stone Jesus, and he's, he's got away. But they've already tried to kill him twice. And a little bit later in the book of Acts, we read that they stoned Stephen. And that seems somewhat formal. There's, there's, it tells you about their lying down their coats, as was custom. There's someone who's a high Jewish official overseeing it, which we le- later learn is Saul. And there doesn't seem to be any repercussions from that. So whether it's true they can kill him or not, that's debatable. Probably not. They probably could. But what's equally true is they clearly want Jesus dead. They've made it very clear. Any semblance of the idea that he's going to get some sort of fair trial here, that's out the window. They want him dead. And so they come to him and they say, but we can't kill him. See, the problem is as well is that Jesus is pretty popular. Only a week before, you had him coming into Jerusalem and you had all these people on Palm Sunday celebrating, shouting Hosanna. He's been pretty popular. He's been feeding people. He's been healing people. People think he's a big deal. 
It's just the Roman leaders who are put out. And so they're like, we want this guy dead. We want to get rid of him. But we don't want to do it because, well, then the people aren't going to be very happy with us. So they're keen to foist it off onto Pilate and to blame the Romans. So what evidence or facts did they put forward for Jesus' death and for his uh, guilt? First, as we've already said, they said he is evil. And obviously we've all read probably, or at least a lot of us have read the gospel, and we, we can see how they made that argument. Here's this guy who goes around feeding people that are hungry, healing people who are sick, raising people from the dead. That's one bad guy, right? He's up there with that vicious tyrant, Mother Teresa. You've got to watch out for people like that. Second, a little bit later in the trial, after our reading, they say that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. Okay, well, that is true. He did, and he is. But if we take the Kellyanne Conway example from earlier, glass half full, glass half empty, okay, maybe he is the Son of God, but is that the worry and the danger that the Jewish leaders imply that it is? Probably not. Lastly, as they keep going, going, going through this trial, the last thing they say is, well, you know, he's a threat to the Roman Empire. You've got to watch out for him. He could bring Rome down. And yet Jesus himself, in the passage that we've just read, says that's not true. If ever there was a case of alternative facts, this is probably it, right? The Jewish leaders are bringing this. So they're claiming, they're claiming that Jesus is a threat. They're claiming that he's a threat to the religious health of the people and also just the political health of the nation and therefore to Rome. But realistically, their key issue isn't that. It isn't that he might bring sedition. It isn't that he might be this riotous threat. It's that their own positions are threatened. We've already said that he's made some big stirrings in the crowds. And not only that, but he's come to the Jewish leaders, and he's been a little less than complimentary about them. He's told them they don't have the knowledge that they think they do. He's told them, you barely even know God. And he's called them whitewashed tombs. Now, I recognize that there are quite a few people here who are students, and you're yet to get your first job, which is great. Piece of advice, if your boss ever asks for feedback, calling them a whitewashed tomb is not the way to go. <laughs> if your boss sits there and says, well, I have an area for development, and you say, yeah, you're, you're kind of like a rotting corpse. You're pretty on the outside, but pretty useless inside. It's not, it just it doesn't fly, right? And Jesus has done this, and they've hated it, and they've hated it, and they've hated the, the fallen standing that they've had, and they're worried about how things are going to go. And so they said, right, we, we, we need to get rid of him. We need him dead. And so they're willing to say whatever is necessary to make that happen. A little bit later, again in the text, when Pilate comes to them and says, I think I should release him. This is crazy. There's no guilt. We should let him go. They say, no, no, no. You're no friend of Rome. We, the Jewish people, we have no king but Caesar. And the problem with that is that the Jewish nation has always had God as its king. Years and years and years ago, when they asked for an earthly king and they were granted one, it was always with the understanding that that king would rule under God and would be under God's authority and God's dictate. So for them now to stand up and say, we have no king but Caesar, is basically saying, we have not got God as our king. God is no longer our king. And that's probably the truest thing they've said in this whole thing. Because what they're really standing there saying is, we have no king but ourselves. 
because they are more worried about their own position and their own place rather than the truth. They're willing to take truth and use it as a tool for their own gain. They have no king but themselves. And we look at that story today and we think, it just it seems so primitive. They seem so unsophisticated. You know, they're making claims and they were clearly manipulating Pilate and it seems so obvious. And we like facts. We like to prove everything. And we look at them and we, we kind of chastise them for what they were doing. And we look at Pilate and we think, well, you were just being manipulated. And it's easy to kind of to judge, right? But people today still take very limited responsibility for the things they say and whether or not they're true. And they take very limited responsibility for the repercussions of the things they say. There's a guy who's a comedian that goes by the name Dave Weasel, and he operates a satire and fake news site. And recently, I'm sure you know, Facebook announced that it was going to try and crack down on some of this fake news because of the problems that it was causing. And his site was one of those that they cracked down on. But his response, which he tweeted out, was, don't blame me if you believe the stories Blame your mum for smoking meth while she was pregnant with you. All right. But this guy is taking no responsibility. He's saying, it doesn't matter what I say. It's irrelevant whether it's true. It's irrelevant whether it's false. I take no responsibility for that. If you want to blame someone, blame yourselves for not having the common sense to understand that I wasn't telling the truth. But why do this, right? And I would say that the motive for personal gain of some variety is just as strong now as it was for the Jewish leaders. There's another website called the National Report, and it claims to be America's number one independent news source. I have no idea how it substantiates that claim, but it's run by a guy called Alan Montgomery, who apparently that's not his real name. But he said in an interview that that website and the people that work there, they have mastered the art of getting people to read stories and then subsequently go on and share the fake news. And some servants said to him, well, why go to all that trouble? And his response was, we've had stories that have made $10,000. When we really tap into something and get it to go big, we're talking about in the thousands of dollars made per story. So again, he's just saying, I don't care. Personal gain is king. The, The important question for him becomes not, Am I telling the truth? Is what I'm saying real? It's, can I get others to believe it? Truth and integrity are taking second place to him achieving what he wants to achieve. His site was also targeted by Facebook with the crackdown. But his response was, really though, if there's money to be made, and there is, you just have to get more creative. So there's no recompense of, there's no element of of changing and changing the way he approaches things. He's just like, there's money to be made, so I just need to be more creative about my lies. So we've seen the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, who were the very religious people of the time, and they have presented one set of facts to get their desired outcome, to get Jesus kind of out of the scene. But they also need Pilate. So let's see and think about what Pilate thinks. So we're looking at the Governor Pilate's case for truth. Now, in some ways, I kind of feel a little bit sorry for Pilate. Not completely, but a little bit. You know, he stood there, and he's got his superiors in Rome, and they're kind of breathing down his neck and telling him, make sure you keep control, make sure you keep control. 
And then he's got these querulous, quibbling Jewish leaders coming along, moaning and whining about Jesus and pushing him basically to do their dirty work, to try and get Jesus killed without them having to do it. And then he's got his wife, who from the other Gospels we know is also equally just a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit fearful of the situation. So she's pushing him and telling him, don't get involved, don't get involved, don't get involved. And then he stood there, and I'm sure he's got his own views and opinions. And then in comes Jesus, and Jesus speaks to him. And there's this guy who he's heard some rumors about, but now this person standing in front of him, whose fate he needs to decide, could potentially be his undoing. I feel somewhat sorry for him. So he takes Jesus inside, and he's trying to find this, some semblance of a charge under Roman law. And the first thing he says to Jesus is, so are you a king? Are you really a king? Now, maybe this is because uh, kings, unless they were sanctioned by Rome, really weren't okay. There was this worry of authority and uprising. So he's saying, well, if this guy's coming along and he's claiming to be a king, maybe he's trying to drum up support. And if he's doing that, well, that's a problem for Rome. So he says, do you claim to be a king? But Jesus doesn't immediately respond. Instead, he asks him a question. He says, is this something that you are asking Or are you just repeating something because you've heard it from somewhere else and you just want to know if I'm a threat? Both are legitimate questions and both have answers. But basically, Jesus is saying, Pilate, what do you actually care about? And Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Or in other words, in today's language, do I look like I care? He's basically saying, look, this is, this is something I'm not interested in. Your own people have come and said this. It's your own issues. It's your own problems. I have no interest in this whatsoever. And Jesus understands his response in that way because when he goes on to respond to him, he says, Rome is not under threat. He's like, I'm not here to bring about revolution the way you think about it. He's like, if, there were, if I were, there would be people fighting even now for me. There would be people coming and fighting to get me out, to get me released. And that's not the case. No one is here. No one's fighting. And if you remember back to last week, we talked about how Peter drew a sword when they came to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus stepped in and said, no, 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 we're not going to fight. That's not going to be the way it is. And maybe Pilate's already heard about that. Maybe he heard about the miraculous healing that happened to Malchus, who's had his ears chopped off. So maybe there's some credibility in what Jesus says there. And then he goes on to say, so you are a king. And Jesus doesn't deny that. He also doesn't deny that he has a kingdom. He does. But what he says is, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. And what he's saying is that, he's not saying that I don't have a kingdom or that it doesn't interact with this world or that it doesn't have influence in this world. What he's saying is, it's not the same as kingdoms from this world. It doesn't get its power from the same place. It doesn't grow. It doesn't expand in the same way. It's a very different kingdom. In other words... Pilate, you're not in any threat from this. And that's clearly what Pilate takes from it because he goes away and tells them, look, I find no guilt in him. Nothing in Roman law. So they come back and they say, oh, yes, but he's claimed to be the son of God, like we said before, which we said is true. But why are they telling him? Pilate's already said, I don't care about your Jewish myths and stories, as he calls them. I don't care about that. So why are they telling him? Well, the Romans were also a superstitious bunch, and they had a pantheon of gods. And they somewhat believed that uh, the gods would occasionally come down to earth and live with earth 
uh, the people of earth to kind of interact with them and to, to kind of change some of the things that were going on in the world. So now he's thinking, well, what if I'm dealing with someone who is a God who's come down to earth and is now going to interact with me? And, you know, if a God comes down to earth and you basically put them to death, you can probably expect some retribution, right? So he's got some personal fear at this point. It's not just his career, but he himself is fearful. Jesus doesn't immediately respond to that. So Pilate gets irritated. And he says, Jesus, don't you understand that I'm the one with authority here? I'm the one with power. I can let you go or I can have you killed. And Jesus turns to him and says, I don't think you understand authority. He says, Pilate, you've just got the authority that's been given to you from above. You can't operate outside of the authority that's been given. And you can hear that in two ways, and it it probably was. So Pilate, when he heard that, probably thought, he's referring to my superiors in Rome. He's saying, I've got the authority that's been delegated to me. But we, as we read the Bible, and as we read these words, we're thinking he has the authority that's been delegated by God, and he can't go beyond God's control, which is also true. But he's still reassured by this. He hears Jesus saying that, yes, he might be partly to blame, but there are certainly other people more to blame. And he's thinking, well, if this is a God who's come down to earth and he might create retribution, there's going to be others he's going to be looking for before me. It doesn't matter if I run fast. As long as I run faster than the guy behind me, everything is fine. So he then he goes out again and he says, you know, I, I really see no reason to charge this guy. He's blameless. He's without guilt. But the leaders by this point have drummed out quite a crowd. And this crowd is incensed. And now they threaten Pilate and they say, well, he's standing against Rome. And if you stand with him, you're no friend of Caesar. Now, this title, friend of Caesar, was actually an official title. And it was given to a very select bunch. And at this point, the Jewish leaders are playing to Pilate. And they're playing to his desire to kind of rise up the social echelons of Rome. And they're also playing to his fear. Saying, if you don't stand against this man and he is against Rome we're going to be sure that Caesar finds out. And it was always a very difficult position. Pilate has said three times in this text and the one that follows, Jesus is innocent. I find no guilt in him. That's the absolute truth. And if that's the absolute truth, then you'd expect Pilate as a judge and as a a good governor to exonerate Jesus and say, okay, you should go. There's no guilt. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He is less concerned with truth and more concerned with his own personal standing and his career and what's going to happen if this angry mob starts to riot. He could get replaced. He could get removed. His career is gone and he potentially loses everything. Pilate spent quite a bit of time trying to understand what Jesus is not. Is he a threat? No. Is he a God who's going to challenge me and bring me personal harm? No. But he's a little bit less concerned about why Jesus is actually here. What is his purpose? And as we read and we saw from the title of the series, Jesus says to Pilate, for this purpose I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? What is truth? It's not a philosophical question. 
I think Pilate probably doesn't actually care because for him, truth is whatever he says it is. If he says this is truth, then Jesus goes and dies. If he says this is truth or that is truth, then Jesus is let free. For him, it's not a philosophical question. Truth is whatever he says. And for him, the absolute truth of Jesus' innocence is less of a concern than what's most expedient for him, what's going to bring him the most gain. So we've seen the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish leaders, coming, and the secular world represented by Pilate coming. And although they come from different backgrounds and different standpoints, basically they're in agreement. Truth is something that they can define, and it's a tool that they can use for their own gain. So then that just leaves us with John, who wrote this gospel. And what is he telling us about truth? When Pilate throws that question out, what is truth? It's a bit of a reflection of his somewhat cynical heart. But John uses the words of characters in his narrative and in his stories to raise questions in us and in the readers. He leaves these questions out there to make us ponder, to make us think. And he's left this question out there. He said, what is truth? And what's really noticeable in the story is that Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't give a verbal answer. Instead, what we see is the story of the events of the passion outworking. Now, when we think about truth, we think about truth as being the opposite of falsehood, right? So the opposite of truth is lies. So truth is a provable fact. It's something that we can prove through observation or through research or whatever it might be, the scientific method, right? That for us is truth. But when the Bible talks about truth, the words it uses are much more than that. It's a much bigger concept. It also takes into account things like faithfulness. It takes into account reliability, dependableness, trustworthiness, and sureness, these ideas. And it applies them to God. It speaks of truth almost primarily in, response to, uh, in, in reference to God. An example is in Psalm 31. And in Psalm 31, the author is describing God, and he's describing as a place of refuge, as a place of safety, and as a place of dependability. And he says, O Lord, true God, or faithful God. Again, those ideas of dependability and faithful and trustworthy. And in the Old Testament, truth is like a characteristic of God, and it incorporates all of these broader ideas about what truth is. And we see that carried on into the New Testament. So in the book of Romans, Paul, at the very beginning, is talking about God's very nature. And he talks about how God's nature and character is revealed in creation for everybody to see. But he then goes on and talks about people that choose not to worship God for whatever reason, despite his character being readily available. And he talks about them and how they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped other things. And again, in that passage, he's very closely relating the idea and the concept of truth with who God is and his character. Leon Morris is, uh, is a Bible theologian and scholar, and in his commentary on John, he says this, truth is a characteristic of God, and it is only as we know God that we can fully know truth. And he's saying, so if truth contains all these ideas, all these aspects of dependability and faithfulness and sureness. We can only really understand these things in and as much as we know God. So when Jesus stands forward and says, for this purpose he was born and he came to the earth, 
that he might bear witness to the truth, what he's saying is that his mission on earth is to be a witness, is to proclaim and honor the glory and the beauty of God's character. He's saying, my point of me being on earth is so that I can bear witness to who God is and his essential nature to reveal who God is. And Pilate asks for an explanation. He's like, well, what is that truth? And as we said, none is immediately given. Not verbally. But then what we do see is then from there on out, we just see the events of the passion playing out. We see Jesus taken and he's beaten and he's mocked and he's tortured. We see him taken and dragged through the streets, somewhat bloody and naked. We see him carrying this cross and we see them get to the place where the cross is going to be put up and then we see him nailed to the cross. And we see that cross lifted up and Jesus is there hanging on that cross in front of a jeering crowd. And as he stands there on the cross in the jeering crowd, we hear and we see that he's lonely and he's in anguish and finally he dies. What is truth? Truth is the character and nature of God expressed in the events of the passion, expressed in the events of Jesus being there, being beaten, hung on a cross, and dying. That is truth. It's the character of God expressed in that self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. An act that was voluntarily undertaken because God so loved the world, he was willing to give his one and only son to restore us to a relationship with him that we'd broken. What is truth? It's the character of God. It's love poured out in a self-sacrificial way just to restore people into a relationship with God, people who chose not to be in that relationship and break it down. It's a love that expresses itself by going full out to restore those people to himself. Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus says, here it is. It's God expressed through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to restore us. In this act is the full revelation of who God is. This is Jesus bearing witness to God. It was for that truth that Jesus came, and it's for that purpose he was born. In this passion narrative, in this story about the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is basically offering a lived-out demonstration of the nature of truth, the essential character of God, as expressed through the cross when he came to pay the penalty for sins that we committed and the penalty that we should have paid to restore our relationship with God, the God of truth. Now, when Jesus did speak to Pilate and he told him that purpose statement, he told him that mission, he told him that he was here to bear witness to the truth, that wasn't the last thing he said to Pilate. Because he also said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, the problem is truth demands a response. Truth creates an obligation. Because when we hear truth, we've got two options, right? Option number one is we can say, I don't believe that's true. And we can ignore it. And we can walk away and we can just say, that's not going to change anything. The other option we have is we respond. And we say, we believe that's true. And because we believe that's true, that requires us to change the way we think or to change the way we live or to change the way we interact with God. Truth demands a response. 
And so when Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king, Jesus responds, those are your words. You said that. But the question is, those were of the truth. Listen to my voice. In other words, you said those things, but do you believe they're true? Are you going to live them out? Is it going to change anything about you? Now, we have the benefit of near on 2,000 years of reflection. We have the Bible that God has spoken to us through. We have the benefit of knowing and reading about why Jesus came. We have a distinct benefit over Pilate, who, who wasn't even close to that level of knowledge. But the truth is, we still face that same challenge today. Because Jesus says, this is truth. I've told you. I've laid it out. Here it is. Do you believe it? Is it going to change you and the way you live your life and the way you interact with God? I want to invite the band to come back up on stage. As I was thinking about uh, this message this week and I was thinking through it, I think there are two very obvious things that I kind of, conclusions that I came to. And if, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're exploring faith and the nature of faith and God and all this kind of stuff, think about the Easter story. Maybe read through it in John and just, if there's bits you don't know, just learn about them. But remember that the truth that's being expressed there demands a response. Either you say, I don't believe that, and you walk away and it changes nothing, or you need to think about it and say, okay, if this is true, how do I respond? How do I respond to this? Because the the story of the Easter message is one that began way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and they broke relationship with God. And then ever since that point, God has been trying to restore that relationship. And the Easter story is him taking the, the biggest possible step to restore that relationship with you. How will you respond to that truth? How will you respond to that revelation? Do you just want to ignore it and move on? Or do you want to grapple with it a bit more? And I was then thinking about, okay, well, what about those of us here this morning that are Christians? What about those of us here who have committed and said, yeah, we believe this. This is true. Easter is this massive, massive reminder in our lives of the nature and the character of God. A God that so loved us that he gave his one and only son. And so if we're Christians here this morning, and I speak to myself, I just encourage you to dwell on that and dwell on the idea that God came to express love, a perfect love for you. And I think for me, that just causes me to reflect and to worship and to be thankful, for sure, but just to worship and recognize who God is, that God of love, that proactive God who loves us so much, he wants to restore. He wants to restore us in relationship with him just encourage you to think through and just try and in your mind unpack that love and the depth of love and that proactive stance that God took and just to let that love register in you and respond to that love with love.